Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled Grace for Dealing with People. Have you ever had that thought that life would just be easier if other people didn't exist? I mean, I could be so much more productive and would probably never get frustrated. However, God commands believers to be flow through channels of His love and grace unto our spouses, families, churches, and the lost. And yes, I'll go ahead and state the obvious. These are people, and we are called to love them. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. That's a long title. Grace for Dealing with People. <laughs> Isn't it funny that if... Life did not involve people. Imagine it was just dogs. You and a whole bunch of dogs. Doesn't that sound easier? It's like you could love those dogs. You could serve those dogs. When you pet them, they wag their tail. And when they greet you, they wag their tail. It's just like everything about a dog is pleasant. And we get dealt the ministry to people. I know that there's a lot of us that feel called to dogs. Uh, we do. It's like it's a strange wooing that takes place within our soul to leave the people business and go into the animal business. Animals just are, they're different, okay? They don't have the flesh, the control of sin. You know, they have other issues, but it's just different. And so there's an attraction to it. However, as a Christian, our business is people. And so you need to figure out how you're going to relate with people. We all have different mechanisms for how we do it. Some of us cloister and cut off and hide. Some of us, you know, just sort of put on a big plastic grin and smile at everything, hoping that, you know, you can just pass through without ever, anyone knowing that you're hurting inside. Some of us don't want that people issue, that inspection. Being around people, they may ask a question. Or I, I remember when I was graduating from high school, everyone asked that one question. So what are you doing next? You know, there's seasons in our life where that one question, whatever it is, is always coming up, and you can just get so tired of it. Well, then there's all sorts of other dimensions, whether it's at work, whether it's at home. Just try a marriage relationship on for size. Marriage doesn't go away. It's just there. And you're in the same bed with that person, too. You wake up, you brush your teeth next to them. You're always around this person. If you aren't good... In relationship with people, you know, marriage can be a, a rather taxing thing. How about with your children? You have children, you find out pretty quickly they don't go away either. <laughs> what in the world did we start here? You know, I remember the big commitment that Leslie and I had when we were first married is we got a bird. And I remember being so overwhelmed with a bird commitment. You know, because the lady said, yeah, and these birds, I think it was, what kind of bird was that, a finch? Uh, Budgie, budgies uh, from uh, Australia, yeah, Australian budgies. Is that what they're called, budgies? Sounds funny all of a sudden. But the lady said, yeah, and they can live 17 years. I'm like, <gasps> 17 years of caring for a budgie. Uh, well, try on a kid for size. I mean, they can live, what, what's the average age range now? You know, 80? I mean, that's a long time. It's like, <gasps> uh, if you don't like working with people, Christianity's one difficult business. Because it's people. It's people that are dying. It's not healthy people oftentimes. It's the people that have a smell to them. And that's who we're called to. So, this is a very important message. Grace for dealing with people. Well, let's understand grace. 
Now, this is going to be a crash course. It's a repeat of a message. The very first beginning of a message is a repeat of a message called the prize fighter that we had, uh, where I go through grace, faith, and love. Three component attributes, mechanisms that make Christianity work. If you don't know what these three are, Christianity just doesn't work. When we're going through discipleship, you have to learn how Christianity functions. It's a functional thing. It's not a theoretical thing. It must work. And it works with very specific things, grace being one of them. Now, a lot of us today have the notion that grace is the hug of God, the overlooking of God upon our messy state. Well, that actually isn't what grace is. Grace is defined in Scripture very clearly to be the power of God or the labor of God on man's behalf or the power of God to enable us to carry out the errands of God. In other words, God has a commission for us. You can't carry it. So how do you carry it? By the grace of God, by his working in and through us. But grace is working. But it's not our working, it's his work. We're not saved by our own works. We're saved by his work. It's his working. So it's his work on the cross, that's grace. But then it's also his working in and through us. That's grace. Okay, so the labor of God on man's behalf. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And I have, in Ellerslie, we go through this in great depth, teaching what the Bible actually says about grace. This is just one little quick summation. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is saying, I am who I am. Paul the apostle, I am what I am because of the grace of God. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. So he was given grace from God. And he labored as a result of being given this grace. Now listen very closely. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What was it that labored in and through Paul? It was grace. So he labored more abundantly. Why? Because he was given grace. So, But his labor was not his labor. It was God working in and through him to carry out the work of the king. Paul was a vessel of grace. And so he yielded his life up to Jesus Christ, to the grace of God, and the grace of God filled him, took his limbs, took his body, took his mouth, his eyes, his heart, and labored in and through this body. Mm -hmm. That's how Christianity works, and it works on the principle of grace. For by grace are you saved. Now, I know that, I know that there's another half to this scripture. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But for by grace are you saved. What saves you? Well, you could say his work. It's his work back on the cross that saves you. And what saves you today from the temptation that's coming against you? Mm -hmm. It's his work, his grace. He must labor to overcome that which would otherwise trip you. He must save you, not just in the big salvation concept of, you know, you don't go to hell, you go to heaven, but save you today, right now. You might be being tempted. You might have something coming against you that is trying to allure you away from the king, from the clear commission that you've received. Well, what do you need to stay on the straight and narrow? What do you need to guard that soul? You need grace. For by grace are you saved. Now, here's a quick summation. Grace is not just evidence at the cross, but has been made eternally available through the cross. So the cross is not just a statement of, wow, look at the grace of God. Look at the work of God back then. But it has now been made available in and through the cross. 
So now the same grace that is revealed at the cross is made available to us because of the cross. Very exciting. This grace is ever-present, always available, always accessible, amazingly sufficient for every good work, potently efficacious, and divinely effective in procuring its ends. God has made available to you everything you could possibly need to carry out the life that you've been commissioned to live. Don't just stare at scripture and go, that's impossible. Yes, it is impossible, but not for his grace. His grace is able. He is able to supply you with everything you will need. Now, remember the context of this message. Grace for dealing with people. In other words, people, oh, that's about as big a challenge as you're going to face. Now, I know we could list other challenges because there's a lot of inward challenges we face of temptation. But I tell you what, most of that temptation is coming through people. If you eliminated all the people off planet Earth, you were living just in a desert, you, you could still be tempted. Uh, but, I mean, self-pity could be one of your temptations right there. However, people are oftentimes the carriers, the harbingers of the temptation. I mean, come on, do you need to dress that way? And when someone dresses that way, it's their choice, but it becomes a potential stumbling block for you. And so as a result, people, you just have to know how to deal with them. Faith. So we just described grace. Now we're going to move to another key term in, in Christianity, faith. The trusting gaze of man upon his God. Now I could give whole messages on faith. This is not going to be that. But this is a very simple uh, definition. I think A.W. Tozer's uh, definition, might have been Andrew Murray's, was the gaze of the soul upon Jesus. The trusting gaze of man upon his God. Faith seems to be linked in the Christian life with eyesight. But it's not the eyes, our physical eyes. It's the eyes of our soul. And we, we take those eyes and we're putting them on something. We have confidence in something. Where are you looking for your salvation? And most of us look to ourselves. We're like, I think I could do it. Yeah, I, I think I could stand in this situation and, and pull it off. Some of us are looking at the power of sin to defeat us. And so even before the temptation comes... We've seen the power of sin. Our confidence is in the power of sin to defeat us. So yeah, I'll fall again. Yeah, I'll trip. Yeah, yeah, it's, got, it's had me for 20 years. It'll have me for 21. And so as a result, our confidence is in the power of the devil. You see, we have confidence in something. You have faith. But where are your eyes turned? When you turn them towards the living God and towards his work on the cross, that is literally where the salvation comes. It says, for by grace... You are saved through faith. So you are saved by this work, but what must you do? You must take the eyes of your soul and look upon it and behold your salvation. You must say, that is my salvation. That is the work that was requisite for my soul to be rescued. Faith is the channel through which grace flows into the life of man and thusly into this earth. So imagine that God has purchased this grace upon the cross. But it's in another realm. It's there, and it's finished, it's gained, but it isn't in you. I mean, most of us prove that on a daily basis. We're not walking by grace. We're walking by self-effort. And so faith is almost like a big uh, tube or a big conduit that connects all that is in heaven with your soul and your life. And faith opens up the channel, and now the grace can begin to pour through it into your life. But without the faith... You can't get the grace. For by grace you are saved through faith. 
So faith is the channel through which grace flows into the life of man and thusly into this earth. Faith is the response of the soul to beholding the truth, reality, and fact of God's being. First a man knows, and then thusly reckons, and then yields and presents his life unto God, and then exerts his soul willfully in absolute and unquestioning obedience to the commands of his new Lord and Master. That comes from a message called the work of a believer. There's five dimensions to belief. It's not just knowing that God is a historical figure, that Jesus did walk on the earth as a man 2,000 years ago. Yes, and then he died and he rose again, sure. Yeah, I believe it. It's not just a true-false test. It's not some historical knowledge. You must know it, yes, but then you must reckon it. You must take it as if it is yours. Then you must yield and present if he truly is the Lord and purchaser of your body, then what should you do? You should give your body to him. This is a natural outflow of belief. Belief leads to action. You can't just know something and believe it and not act upon it. And so therefore, faith is the necessary element that allows the grace or the labor of God to enter into us. Love. And the Greek pronunciation, which is I always grew up with agape, was the way you'd say it, but it's technically agape. Agape. All right? It's always that guy that does the Greek. He's like, Strong's G432. Agape. Agape. <laughs> so I've gotten the point. Okay, buddy? It's, I have been mispronouncing it my entire life. That's fine. Love. Now, for us, love is a fairly generic term. Okay? We love pizza. And we love God. Okay, you see how we have used this word in almost a careless fashion to the point that when we get to something like this, and when God says, you will know my disciples by their love, well, you will know my disciples by their love. Well, yeah, this guy loves pizza. Is that a disciple of Jesus then? You follow me? If you do not understand what that word is, then you can misconstrue what we are recognized as or what we are recognized for in the body of Christ. We are recognized for agape, which is the behavior and attitude of God expressing itself in man. Now let me give you a little quiz. If love is the behavior and attitude of God expressing itself in man, how can that be accomplished? By what power? By your strength can you express love? What would you need in order to express love? You'd need grace. How do you get grace? Through faith. Okay, so... You need the grace, because the grace is the only way to do this, to love. But to have that love expressing through your life, you need to believe. You need to have faith in the God who purchased it, the God who did the work. Okay, that's why these three must come together in a package. If you remove one, it's like, oh, grace. And you redefine grace. We have a whole bunch of people in the church that have redefined grace to be the hug, and they live whatever way they want. They belch, scratch, itch. They do whatever they want in their, in their spiritual life and then say, oh, but God covers it all in his grace. That has nothing to do with grace. Nothing. That is trying to create a license for sin when the living God loved us so much that he came and gave up his life to redeem us and to break the power of sin over us. How disgusting is it that we would continue to live in bondage when we've been set free? So agape, the behavior and attitude of God expressing itself in man. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. But there's one thing that does avail. In other words, it works. It actually produces and succeeds. But faith which works by agape. That's what works. 
So faith that is working to reveal the behavior and the attitude of God, that is what changes the world. The action of faith causes grace to overtake, empower, and renovate the believing life, turning the body of a man into the workshop of God. The result is an alteration of behavior and attitude. The result is that God's divine behavior begins to manifest and demonstrate itself in and through the consecrated saint of God. Agape, the chief end. What is God attempting to bring about in this body? Just good morality? God has an end. He is looking to bring something about in our bodies. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, though that be not scripture, that is good classical understanding of the true purpose of what we are here for. We are here to bring glory to our God. How do you bring glory to God? What would it look like? What would that glory look like? It would be agape. The full weighty expression of his person, his beauty, his holiness, his majesty, his purity, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his wrath, and his power. Agape is God behavior, God thoughts, God actions, God nature, God character, God ethics, God compassion, and God's manner with sin. And it is this agape that reveals God. Agape is the great work of grace and the great end of faith. So if grace is coming into you, what's it going to come out like through your skin? What's it going to come out like through your mouth? What's it going to come out like through your actions, behavior, your attitude? What's it going to look like? It's going to be defined as agape. If grace is truly working inside of you, it's going to evidence itself in love, in agape. Now, if faith, if you believe upon the cross and you turn your confidences unto Jesus Christ and his work, what are you going to receive? Grace. But what's the end result of grace? Agape. So, the great end, of, of the great purpose of grace, the great end of faith is the same. It's to bring glory to God. It's by revealing his nature and his behavior and his character to this world in and through the saints of God. Us. 2 Peter 1. Okay, now, I'm going to read something with the Greek still intact. This is going to be a little intimidating at first, but you have to realize I'm doing this on purpose because each of these words means something to us, and we have a tendency to default to our previous understanding of what they mean. What I want to do is get you just down to the Greek word, and I want to give you a fresh understanding, not changing the meaning. It's just what the meaning is. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Whoa. You know what that just said? That just said that we've been given, in and through Christ, in and through the work on the cross, exceeding great and precious promises, that by these exceeding great and precious promises, you may become partakers of the divine <clears throat> nature. Whoa. Agape. The very divine nature of God, you can now partake of it. Wow. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Okay, so what we have is what's typically called the seven graces. That's what this has been typically called throughout Christian history. The seven graces. Isn't that an interesting word to use? So the seven works or labors of God within the construction of men and women, of the saints of God. 
And so it starts with faith. And what is faith a catalyst for? What flows through faith? Grace. So add to your faith grace, because the grace is going to come. You believe your God. You diligently apply yourself unto your God. And guess what's going to flow through that channel? Grace. The seven graces. The seven works of God, the labor of God to reveal himself to this world. So let's look at this. It says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, arite. And to arite, gnosis. And to gnosis, ekreteia. By the way, if any of you are Greek scholars and you listen to my accents, I sound more Italian than I do Greek. And I know that. I just don't know how to sound Greek, okay? No matter how hard I try. And to ekreteia, hupomone. And to hupomone, usebia. And to usebia, Philadelphia. And to Philadelphia, agape. See, I think that's more Spanish, maybe. <laughs> For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how it ended? Look what faith led to. Agape. See, the end of grace is agape. And so what you see in this is the entire working of faith, grace, to love. And this is the picture of how God constructs his saints. And so, if these things be in you and abound, in other words, they're growing, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Introducing the house of grace. So remember, I called these things the seven graces. These are the exceeding great and precious promises. I oftentimes will use the lake house just next door as a symbol of being in Christ. And so I'll talk about it. Just imagine that it is Christ. And so on the outside, if you're in the midst of a storm and winds and rains are beating against you, sleet is pummeling you, the cold is moving in, and it's dropping quickly, your body is feeling the effects. And that's the way most of us are in this dying world. We begin to awaken to the fact that we are cold. We are dying. We are withering. And yet we hear a message that inside that lake house is temperature-controlled air, that it's always 70 degrees, and that there's no wind and rain and sleet and snow in there. You're protected from it inside. Now, how ridiculous would it be to hug the outside of the door? You know, the key is that you enter into the lake house. And if you enter in, you have all the merits of that which the lake house offers. And the same is true with Christ. You could be near Christ, you could be, you know, talk about Christ, but you must be in Christ. The difference between being inside an airplane and being on the outside of the airplane is huge when it comes to the law of gravity. The law of gravity still has effect over you as long as you are outside the aircraft. But once you enter in, the strength of that airplane, which conquers the law of, aer of, of gravity with a stronger law known as the law of aerodynamics, actually works on your behalf. You don't need to do any work. You just sit in your seat. And the law of aerodynamics, the strength of that plane and the merit of that plane is able to conquer that which once conquered you. And that's the work of grace. But it's inside the house. And so you could dream of temperature-controlled 70-degree air being preserved from the sleet and the snow. But guess what? If you are not inside the house, you do not have it. So imagine that you did enter into the house and you went into the coat closet and you got all snugly warm in the coat closet. Okay, at least I'm not outside in the sleet and snow. And guess what? You do have the benefit. 
But wouldn't it be strange if you sat in the coat closet and there's seven other rooms of grace that God's saying, no, 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 I've given you all of this. How ridiculous would it be to hang out in the coat closet? It's actually disrespectful to the housemaker, to the one who built it. The carpenter from Nazareth built you a mansion of an inheritance. And he says, come on, take me by the hand and I want to show you this great house that I've made for you. And by the way, the great house is him. He's the house. So this is exploring the depths of him and what he gained for us, the work of his grace. So introducing the house of grace, the house of seven rooms. Giving all diligence, add to your faith, arite. And to arite, gnosis. And to gnosis, egretia. And to egretia, hupomone. And to hupomone, eusebia. And to eusebia, Philadelphia. And to Philadelphia, agape. <laughs> Spanish, Italian. But I guess they're both Latin roots, aren't they? So... Exploring the house of promise. Now let's give a little more clarity to this because now you see that there's seven of them. Okay, seven of them are there. There's these exceeding great and precious promises. The grace of God has been made manifest. So add to your faith. You have that conduit pipe into the heavenlies. Allow these graces to enter into your life. Cultivate them. With all diligence, cultivate them. So exploring the house of promise. Get up out of the coat closet and start exploring these rooms. Arite. I'm going to give each one of these an understanding. This is a very simple thing. And by the way, you could study this possibly for the next year, just in depth. I mean, this is, this is amazing how much is in this. But arite, typically translated as virtue, okay, which means very little to us. But I'm going to call it one of the seven graces, the first of the seven graces. And we'll say it's the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. So add to your faith the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Why wouldn't you? It's there. With all diligence, go after it. Cultivate it. It's available to you in this house. Go explore that room. Number two, gnosis. The grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. Number three, agratea. The grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment and walking in self-control. That's the message to call the prize fighter. I went through this and stopped on agratea and built the entire message out of it. Number four, hupomone, the grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability, typically translated as patience. Number five, eusebia, typically translated godliness, the grace for honorable action. And six, if you can guess where I'm going to stop and hang our hat today, Philadelphia, the grace for people. And number seven, agape, the grace for walking in all the graces and revealing God's very nature and behavior always. It's the crowning one. It's the umbrella which, in which all these other graces function. All these other six before it are the elements that are under that umbrella. This is love. This is agape. This is what it looks like. So I, I did a little pronunciation guide for all of us. The Greek pronunciation guides don't work for me. So, Philadelphia. See that? Philadelphia. See, it doesn't say Philadelphia. It says Philadelphia. Okay, I didn't come up with this. I'm innocent. Okay, Philadelphia is the grace for people. You have people issues. You have people challenges. You have people frustrations. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's a room in Christ with everything you will need for your people issues. Isn't that amazing? Get up out of the coat closet and go to that room. You have everything you need for the most difficult, the most challenging people issues 
that you will ever face. There is no people issue that you could ever face that is too big for what God has supplied for you in that room. So, grace, the grace for family. Who gets under your skin faster than anyone else? You don't need to say it out loud. Yeah. Family. What is it about family? It's familiar. It's that which is close to you. In, in Ellerslie terminology, it becomes roommate. It's that which is close to you, that which you begin to inspect all their flaws as you get closer and closer and closer. You begin to see inconsistencies. You see things that are flagrant fouls. And instead of focusing on what you love about them and what's endearing about them, you have a tendency to focus on that which irritates. The grace for family. You know that there's a grace that has been supplied to the body of Christ for that very thing? So you can get near and dear with someone and be in isolation with them in a prison cell for 40 years and rejoice and be best of buddies when you come out, as opposed to with your chains hitting each other all day long. The grace for the church. Tell you what, there's some funny people in church. You might be one of them. In other words, we're not just a band of perfected. We're a band of those that are being perfected, hopefully. That's why it's very important that the church takes a strong stand on being perfected. Otherwise, we're a hospital for idiots. Let's make sure that we're going somewhere, that we're growing up onto something. But when we come together, we're a work in process. Have you ever raised children? You don't expect them to be a finished product. They're little children, and that's the way the church is, too. You have a whole bunch of infants that don't even have control over their neck yet. They haven't even learned to roll over, crawl, say, dada. They're basic development. And so there needs to be a grace for this. Otherwise, you get frustrated. It's like, come on, kid. Grow up faster. A kid can't grow up faster. You know, it doesn't help a kid to complain, you know, over the fact that they, you know, have to use a diaper. It's like, come on, why don't you just use the big boy toilet? The kid is three days old. <laughs> the grace for dealing with the unlovely in those you are called to love. There's unlovely in every single one of us. And there needs to be a grace given to each one of us to deal with the unlovely dimensions that are not yet rasped, are not yet polished, are not yet dealt with. And guess what? There's unlovely attributes in people, and they have no intent of changing those attributes, which makes it extra difficult. At least you know if they're trying to change it, you have a certain grace for it. But that's human grace. I'm talking about divine grace that has grace no matter what they choose to do. You have Jesus' grace, not just social grace. The grace for showcasing love in relationship with those that are often unlovely. Loving the Little Years. This is actually a book. It's sort of funny. Leslie, I, I was in, in bed last night. Well, it was two nights ago. Uh, and Leslie was just brushing her teeth or something. And I saw a bed, uh, I'm sorry, a book on her bedside table. And it looked fascinating. It had a little kid with spaghetti sauce all over it. Uh, and, you know, I, I love little kid things. So I reached over, and it's called Loving the Little Years, Motherhood in the Trenches. You can see what Leslie's been going through. Uh, and it's by Rachel, and I, if Rachel ever hears this, I'm sorry, Rachel, if I get this name wrong, but Jankovic. Uh, and the reason I say that is because there was something else that Leslie read to me, which causes me to think that's how you pronounce it. But this is perfect I mean, it's just shocking. Leslie reads this. She goes, oh, yeah, I wanted to read this to you. And she reads this chapter to me, which I want to read to you. And I tell you what, it's perfect for this message. Just wait till you hear it. This is great. 
Chapter 9 to the fifth power. Something we discovered when we had twins is the concept of the bulk effect. Our OB told us in advance that having the twins was not going to make us twice as busy, we had two at the time, but rather exponentially busier. And he was right. Every time you add a child to your family, you are not just increasing the total sum, you are exponentially increasing. The thing that we had to realize was that the twins were not super fussy babies. There was just twice as much baby fussing. Since we cheated and skipped right to four children, I don't really know about the three kids scene, but I'm pretty sure that three is the tipping point. Up until three, it's easy to see your kids as individuals, and their actions as exclusively their own. After three, they all start running together a bit. Let's say that you are trying to get ready for church, and one child is disobedient, something petty like not putting on their shoes when you told them to. They wandered off and got distracted and loitered in the living room for a minute. In that minute, the baby starts crying, and you see the clock and realize that you're going to be late. You can't find the wet wipes or the baby's shoes, and which you know you put on the table last night. The baby is still screaming, so you are trying to rock the car seat with your foot while doing the hair of your middle child who will not stop bouncing. You are shouting out to your husband to see if he knows what happened to the baby's shoe, probably punctuated with sit still, stop, don't wiggle. As it turns out, your husband is out looking for someone's lost shoe in the car where they are prone to remove them, so you get no response. You begin to have evil thoughts about shoes. <laughs> you start feeling pressure, if you know what I mean. The tension is mounting. You may very well be feeling hot and sweaty while your coffee is getting cold on the counter, untouched. At this moment, the child who didn't put his shoes on comes wandering back, refreshed with a nice smell of magna doodling. What do you think happens? You take that shred of guilt and then harness onto it the stress of the whole situation. You make your child into a scapegoat, a way for you to release all of your tension and stress onto someone who you feel deserved it. He did, after all, disobey. Your massive overreaction was just because disobeying is wrong. So this neat little trick is happening in your head. The consequences for his sin go way up, and the consequences for yours go way down. It is simply a classic shifting of the blame. The situation, now obviously I made this big. The situation is crazy, but you are the person responsible to get the grace to deal with it. It's not an incredible statement. I'm not done yet, but that's a great statement. Let me read it again. The situation is crazy. That's parenting. But you are the person responsible to get the grace to deal with it. Who's in error here? You are doing something to a little child and over-extenuating or over-dramatizing their responsibility at the expense of clearing your name from any guilt when in actuality you didn't go to God to get the grace for the situation. Oftentimes you won't even discipline the sin that did occur because you are wanting to leave the situation with the feeling that you were full of grace toward that child who maliciously magnadoodled. Next time you say you will get spankings. This time you will just have to bear the weight of my discontent, my anger, and my lack of self-control. I will vent on you instead of dealing with myself. So let that be a lesson to you about quick obeying. Do it just like I do. That is, fail completely if you get distracted. If you took the actions of each individual child, nothing big happened. One kid took her shoes off last night in the car. One kid keeps bouncing when you're trying to fix her hair. One kid had a dirty diaper, and one kid magna-doodled instead of putting on shoes. And the baby just wants some attention. And of course, the disobeying is wrong. The combined effect is certainly ripe, especially when you add in the things that mom and dad were responsible for. That, that, 
the time, this time, or that time. The lost clothing that could have been found last night, not noticing the distracted disobedience right away, not getting up early enough to drink your coffee, not getting grace to deal with it as soon as it started heating up. The situation is not a sin. It is merely the combined effect of a lot of people. And just because you can pin down one sin in the batch does not mean that child is responsible for the situation. Your children are not a situation. Isn't that a great statement? Your children are not a situation. They are individuals. Disciplining an individual for a collective situation is a great way to alienate your children. It is not only unjust and unkind, but it is untrue to the gospel. Christ takes our sins. He does not load us down with someone else's. He sees what we have done and takes it from us and bears it with him to the cross. What you just did was toss your burden of guilt onto a child to have her carry it. Well, what is she supposed to do with it other than be beaten down by it? So the bulk effect is that what is what happens when there are a lot of children, and it will happen from time to time. Individually, there is nothing to worry about. As a group, it feels as though we are careening toward destruction. If you have a bunch of little kids, or even a few, you will need to not only be aware of this fact of life, but build up your immunity to it. You will need to see it happening and get the grace for it in advance. See how this fits perfectly with this message? You will need to develop some skills for coping with it that do not involve blaming your children. Philadelphia. This is a quick definition of Philadelphia. Brotherly love, brotherly kindness. Typically how it's translated. However, we have a tendency to take a word like brotherly and make it exclusive to the concept of brother to brother or sister to brother. But it has to involve a brother. But these are those that we are kin to. These are those that we are related to at some level. And you know that that involves family in the biological sense, that involves family in the church sense, and that involves family in the humanity sense. It does. All three of them. It doesn't exclude, you know, two and just leave it down to one. This is an attribute of grace for people, not for horses and dogs or scorpions. This is a, this is a grace for dealing with people. So brotherly love or brotherly kindness, washing the feet of the saints, seeking the benefit of those who believe, laboring to see the body of Christ built strong, carrying those sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus, honoring others above yourself, seeking the profit of the saints even if it means you go without. It means deep abiding affection for those considered brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Eric, a man in need of grace. A quick study in the life of yours truly. Every once in a while we do a study on Eric and I become the... uh, the one that gets to be laughed at and moaned over. Eric, a man in need of grace. Now, what's interesting about this, and we'll sort of study this here. Eric, the people-loving machine. Who needs grace when you are Eric Ludi? <laughs> I have always been a people lover. I love people, and for the most part, before I became weird, people loved me. I could just get along with people. If someone was sad, you want Eric in the room, and Eric will cheer them up. Eric will get them laughing. I'm a people-loving machine. Why would I go to Jesus to get grace for people-loving when I have everything I need in and of myself? It's a good question, isn't it? So what did God have to do? He had to, first of all, make me a Christian and to recognize that when you are a Christian, suddenly there's a natural friction that grows in the situation. I tell you what, I need grace for dealing with people. 
I have people all over the place in my life, and they're not always agreeable. How in the world am I going to do this? Well, first of all, God has to show you your need. So any of you that are sort of wired, like an Eric Ludi, a people-loving machine, you may be the last in this room to recognize it, but you need grace for truly dealing with people the way Jesus would deal with them. Not the way you would, the way Jesus would. You know, I had to completely reformat the hard drive in regards to how I deal with people. What did I want? I wanted people to like me. It had nothing to do with them liking Jesus. It had, it had to do with them liking me. I could get friends. I could win friends and influence people. I could write my own Dale Carnegie book. Sort of a modern take on it, the Eric Ludi edition. I know the skill of dealing with people, and actually God has had to say, are you willing to lose all of that so that you can learn how I deal with people, so that you can love the way I love? There's nothing wrong with a people-loving, per- a per- people-loving, a per- people-loving person. I guess that's correct. There's nothing wrong with that. However, it can be a blockade from someone actually being able to go to God to get their people-loving skills. That we learn to love as God loves, not as humans love. I wanted people to be at peace. I didn't want them to be disgruntled. I didn't want them to be in the heat of conviction. And so you know that if you don't want people to be uncomfortable, you won't give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You won't give it to them squarely. You won't speak to them exactly what is needed in the moment. Why? Well, because I love people. And I don't want them to be uncomfortable. You know, if you parent that way, your child is going to careen off a cliff. You have to love people the way God loves us. And he will not withhold discipline from those he loves. He will give it. And he will speak straight to us. If you, any of you have encountered the Holy Spirit in your life, you know it. He speaks straight. He doesn't just get all, you know, mumbly and is like, well, you know what, there's just certain things in your life I'm just wanting you to do better. He goes straight in to the jugular and grabs a hold of it. He says, this right here is what is hurting you. Well, that's awkward in the people business. You don't do that. By the way, for those of you that aren't familiar uh, with what I do know about my preaching, I do know that I'm violating almost every social norm with how I communicate. I know it. Because I used to be the exact opposite. I used to communicate in such a way which would be sensitive to an audience. And God had to grab a hold of me and say, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for them to please them? Are you doing it for me to please me? In other words, Eric, give your life to me. Give your vocal cords to me. Give your calling to me. Let me do with it what I must do with it. And so I know, actually, that you're not supposed to get loud like I get loud. I don't ponder it, by the way. It's like, I'm going to get loud today. I love Jesus. I love the truth. And how it comes out is just sort of how it comes out. I'm not trying to make it sound a certain way. Eric was a people-loving machine. And by the way, I still am, but it's a completely different version. And guess who needed grace for that new version? I did. Everything about my people-loving now is a work of grace. I have no confidence in my ability to love people. My ability to love people points them to me. I don't want people to see me. I want them to see Jesus Christ. Eric the farmer. Who needs grace for dealing with people if you just become a potato farmer? Okay, here's what's so funny. People-loving Eric goes through a transformation and becomes one of these Christian types, right? And he doesn't just become a Christian type, but now he's speaking truth. And guess what I ran into? Friction. Less than I ran into 
a whole hornet's nest of opposition. And I did not have the grace to deal with it. And I found myself dealing with certain pockets of resentment, bitterness, certain attitudes like, you know what? If you want to go to hell, you go to hell! You know, that type of attitude, it was creeping in around the edges. It's like I wasn't saying it out loud. I just felt it, a little flare up here. And there were times I wanted to leave the country. I remember someone saying, New Zealand's a nice place, you know, and I'm like, New Zealand. I'm going to New Zealand. Les, do you want to go to New Zealand? I wanted away from people. We could have a sheep farm in New Zealand. <laughs> Something that didn't involve people. Both my granddads were farmers, potato farmers up in Idaho. And so guess what came into my mind one day? I remember I was done with people. That's it. That's it. If you don't want to hear the words of truth, then I don't want to give them. I'm done with this thing. Farming. I don't know anything about farming, but I think it's in the blood. I'll figure it out. I'm sure my granddads have land that they could somehow bequeath to me somewhere along the line here. I could learn to farm. I, did, I actually seriously considered it for a season. I laid it before God. I like, God, could you please call me to farming? <laughs> I wanted to deal with plants and, you know, things that, you know, couldn't talk back to me. Who needs grace for dealing with people if you just become a potato farmer? You see, what I was doing is I was turning to a natural solution instead of to the grace of God. I didn't know that there was grace for dealing with people. No one ever told me this. And as a result, instead of turning to God in those moments, I was looking inward to say, I have nothing. I can't handle this anymore. I'm done. And for all practical purposes, I was right. I didn't have anything. I had lost my love for people. It was gone. And I was done. And God wasn't. You see, God never gets to that point, which is an amazing thought. He has grace for help in time of need. And guess what? I just didn't know that he had it. If you don't know that he has it, if you're just sitting in the coat closet and you don't know that there's a whole room inside of him that's dedicated to giving you that which you need to deal with people, well, then guess what? You're going to stink with people. Or you're going to lean on your own ability with people. Eric, the sword-swinging husband. Who needs grace for marriage when you already have grace for marriage? My marriage has always been amazing. And then God made me into a prophet. I don't call myself a prophet, by the way, but let's just call it what it is. <laughs> and so suddenly God gives me a sword. And I'm like, whoa. Well, you could do some things with this. <laughs> And then I come home and practice on less. <laughs> I had no idea how to wield this sword. No idea. It was the growl. It was the growl for the glory of Almighty God. If poor Leslie ever said something like, you know, I was just, I had a thought go through my head. It was, I was just sort of anxious about this. Anxiety! <laughs> that will not remain in this house. Okay, so here's what's funny. I had such a grace for marriage. And then God gave me a grace for standing for his truth. And so in my mind, I can't pray for a grace for marriage because I already have it. I'm already good at marriage. But why am I hurting Leslie all of a sudden? And so what I didn't understand is that I need grace for my marriage. Even though I've had it to a measure in the past, God's growing me. 
and I still need the grace for dealing with people. But it seems so strange. Like, how could I not be doing this right? I should just by default know what to do. I'm good with this type of stuff. I've written books on it. What's wrong with me? I had never seen anyone lug around Ulysses' sword like suddenly I had in my hand. I didn't know how to deal with those near and dear with this. It's like, well, I'm just, you know, they have a fly on their head. (laughs) I didn't know how to deal in an understanding way. And as, I think it's the next thing, the shepherd. You see, a shepherd is what God builds. He builds someone that with humanity, they know how to recognize humanity as the sheep and not as the wolf. You see, a shepherd has a job relationally, socially, if you will, and that is to protect and to show affection and to comfort the sheep. At the same time, to deal a death blow to that which is opposing the sheep. And so when Leslie would come to me with a thought of anxiety, which was just horrifying to Prophet Eric being awakened, I would take my sword or my rod, let's say my staff or my rod, and knock her in the head as if she was the enemy, as opposed to going after that which is attempting to harm her. My wife needs to know that I'm standing facing out towards the enemy, protecting her. You will not touch her. You will not touch her. I can still have a sword, but that sword needs to be directed towards that which is already judged on the cross. Satan, death, sin. These things have been dealt a judgment, and I am free with the sword of my God to wreak havoc on that kingdom, but to preserve and protect that which is trusted to me. Our battle is not against Leslie. It is against the principalities and powers that are opposing her. How many of us in our families as fathers, under the banner of righteous indignation and righteous judgment, can harm our little sheep instead of protect our little sheep against that which is attempting to oppose their soul? The shepherd, he must be hostile towards the predators and kindly affectionate towards his lambs. The argument for affection. Isn't that a funny statement? The argument for affection. A lot of us could conclude, especially on the conservative side, that you don't really feel things in Christianity. Feelings are dangerous. Well, if you're led by feelings, you're exactly right. It's called existentialism, where you are led and you validate truth by if you feel good about it. Oh, I like that truth. Okay, that's truth to me. Well, that's not how it works. God defines truth. You're led by fact. You're led by truth. However, Feeling is a very real part of our existence. God made us the way he did on purpose. And so the argument for affection, does God just want us to obey him out of dutiful allegiance? Or does he actually desire there to be a well of love and a longing to serve him and to be with him? That we love our God. There's an actual affection and a tenderness within us. Does he care about these things? So the argument for affection, Christianity is not just head knowledge, it is heart engagement. Be kindly affectioned one to another with Philadelphia. Isn't that an interesting statement? It says with brotherly love. I I put the translation, or the Greek in there. In honor, preferring one another. So it's a command. Be kindly affectioned. But as touching Philadelphia, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Let Philadelphia continue. 
Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned Philadelphia, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So how does this work? How are you going to love with a pure heart fervently? To be kindly affectioned one unto the other, whether that's to your spouse, whether that's to your kids, whether that's to the unlovely dimensions of your life. It's easy to be kindly affectioned to people that are agreeable and easy to deal with. It's like, be a kindly affection unto your dog, unto your golden retriever. Oh, I think I can do that. Yeah, you can do that. In your own strength, you can do that. But what you are being called to do is beyond your own strength. So do not try and diminish God's calling on your life down to what you can do. Allow it to raise you up to what he can do. Who is the grace of God working in you? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who sponsors your faith. He is the author and finisher of your faith to cause you to look upon the great work of the cross, which was Jesus. And then it's Jesus that comes through that channel into you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, glory, agape. That is how it works. It's Jesus. Jesus is the grace to deal with people. Jesus is that grace. He knows how to deal with people. You don't. You naturally default to the world system around you, what they can train you to do in your own strength, in your own wit, your own wisdom, your own personality. But it will fail you in being able to deliver the goods of the kingdom of heaven to this earth. Only Jesus knows how to properly deal with people. Only he has the grace to train you and to equip you to properly deal with people. What do you need? You need more Jesus. If we love one another, God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. Isn't that an interesting statement? If we love one another, God dwells in us. How do you love one another? By God dwelling in you. That's how you love one another. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Did you hear that statement? We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. This is a fruit that testifies to your soul that you have passed from death into life. In other words, if you are still living in death, you do not love the brethren like God is defining it here. It's a supernatural work. It's not something you're drumming up because you're good with people. This is something that God must bring about inside of us. He that loves not his brother abides in <clears throat> death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A new commandment. By the way, if you go back to this, and you, brethren, for, for, it is rightly defined as all of us. We are the brethren, okay? But it also includes your wife, it includes your family. It includes anything that God is putting within your range that he is commissioning his nature and his behavior towards. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. How are you supposed to love one another? As he loved us. How do you expect to pull that one off? By grace. That's how you pull it off. You will love one another as Christ loves you because he will love in and through you. Don't pray that God would teach you how to love. 
Pray that the God of love would invade you and love through you. It's a different prayer. Most of us are thinking that we can correct the old man, that we can somehow equip it and train it and tutor it to love as God loves. You can't train the old man. You nullify the old man, and you allow a new man to come in and love through you. That's Christianity. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. How are they going to recognize us? By agape. By our agape for our wives, by our agape and husbands, by our agape for our children, by our agape for each other. When they see us deal with the unlovely and they watch us, what do they see? They know that we're a disciple. Because it's supernatural and it's impossible. We've passed from death unto life because no dead man can do that. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith grows exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds. Wouldn't that be an amazing statement for us as the church? That our love, our agape, that's what charity is, our agape of every one of us towards each other is exploding and ever-growing and ever-increasing. That's how the kingdom of heaven works. I don't know what heaven's going to be like if that's the case. It's always increasing. Could you imagine what that would be like to have the love and the affection and the tender mercies expressed one to another always growing? If, those of you that have been at Ellerslie know you've tasted this at a certain level where there's literally times where you even want to cry. You love but it's not that type of love. But I love them so much. It's awkward for sometimes the girls or the guys to get up and say, I just want you guys to know I just love you so much. And you're like, well, not like that, but I do. It's agape is what it is. It is the welling up of the affections of Christ within us. We actually feel affection, love, tenderness towards others. It's not that kind of love, the worldly kind. It's not sensual. It's not romantic. It's different than that, and it's hard to explain. Affectionate love in the Old Testament. Ahava. Ahava. There, let me get it right. Ahava. There it is. Ahava. The deep affections of knitted closeness, the tendernesses of covenant givenness, typically translated as love. He brought me to the banqueting house, speaking of God, and his banner over me was Ahava. That's what it says. God has a tender affections and knitted intimate closeness with us. My Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, have I loved thee with an everlasting ahava, an everlasting ahava. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his ahava. He will joy over thee with singing. David, the beloved. He's not the love, he's the beloved. That's what his name means. The choice of Jonathan. Who did Jonathan choose? He had his father. Jonathan is the son of Saul, the king of Israel. He is the rightful heir to the throne and the inheritance of worldly authority. He, if he's going to choose well, who should he choose to be loyal to? The one who's threatening the throne of his father, the better man? The one that God has said is the rightful king of Israel? Well, that's dangerous. That will mean, what will that mean to Jonathan? He'll lose his throne. He'll lose his position. You know, that's the exact statement of how our soul works. We are the son of the old man. Who's, who's Jonathan's old man? 
Saul. I don't like the term old man in that context, but that's how it works. Jonathan's old man is Saul. So is yours. And you're in the same position that Jonathan is in. And you have two to choose from, the flesh and the spirit. Who are you going to choose? Choose wisely. Who does Jonathan choose? To the detriment of his own life, he chooses the beloved. I'm going to read through first and the second, first Samuel. I don't think I get into 2 Samuel, but it might at the very beginning. I think I have one scripture in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 18, 1, and it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul. So David has stood before Saul. He makes an end of speaking unto Saul. That the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David. And his garments even to his sword and his bow and to his girdle. I want you to realize this is a picture of our relationship with the better man, with Jesus Christ with the beloved. There's affection. There's a real affection. And we have a rightful position in this world, but we give it up. And we take our robe and give it to him. What does he give to us? His robe. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. At every test, this is the test of the soul, the flesh will literally conspire to destroy the incoming claim of the King Jesus in your life. And you must take a side in this matter. And Jonathan spoke good of David unto Saul his father and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee word very good. And David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knows that I have found grace in thine eyes. Isn't that interesting that Jonathan had found, or that David had found grace in Jonathan's eyes? And he said, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desires, I will even do it for thee. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hands, hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. I, I understand throughout, especially modern Christianity, there has been a discomfort over the fact that David and Jonathan had such an affection for each other. And everyone wants to go to the fleshly understanding of that. And I would like to make a public statement that what is being demonstrated here is something that is very critical for your soul, and it is pure, and it is good, and it is held up at the highest level of esteem in Scripture. This is not a small thing, and it should not be derided with the flesh. It should not be undermined with fleshly thinking. He, tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. David will not be at the feast, and Jonathan says, you will be missed. And there is such an affection between them. And I want you to realize this is a picture of us and Jesus. And it came to pass on the morrow, that which, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said, because Saul was going to kill David, so that's the reason he wasn't there. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to eat, neither yesterday nor today? So Saul's now picking up on the fact that David's not here. He's needing to kill David, and David's not at the feast. 
And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. Listen to what happens to Saul. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thy own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. Well, wait till you hear what the flesh says to you. You choose Jesus in your life and all hell breaks loose. The flesh isn't happy about it. Jonathan answered Saul, and Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? Listen to what Saul does. Towards his son, who is sided with David. And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him. Whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David, because his father had done him shame. Are you grieved for Jesus when the flesh does him shame? It's just an amazing statement, the level of affection that Jonathan had for this man. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And they too made a covenant before the Lord, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan, says David. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Okay, now here's the tripping point. How are you going to hear that line? This is David's sentiments when he heard about the death of Jonathan. He says, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Passing the love of women. There's a love in this world that we, most of us, in our human carnal mind would say is the greatest love. And what would it be? It would be the love of a man and a woman. That's what all the love songs are written over. However, guess what the new covenant reveals? It reveals a love that passes the love of a woman and a man. It does. I can't help it. It does. And it doesn't mean it's a disturbed, fleshly love. It is a love that passes it. Supernatural love is greater than natural love. It was revealed at the cross. That is the love that you are called to bear. You are Jonathan entering into covenant with Jesus, the better man. And you must learn to have his love enter into you. The mighty is a picture of men who love. Remember, David is the beloved. The love burn, Joab rushing on Jebus. David became king of Israel. The Jebusites were in the castle of Zion, right smack in the middle of Judah. It was called the castle of Zion. You know it as Jerusalem. David turned his eyes longingly towards the castle of Zion, and he wanted it. He wanted that territory. It's known as the city of David. Joab, who was his number one guy, was watching his eyes. You could just feel the situation. The Jebusites were mocking David, calling him deaf and blind and dumb. And he had no power to overtake their city. All of his men are spurned because of it. Because you make fun of their king, you make fun of them. And the glory, if you will, of David's position in Israel was being suffered violence. And so, what does Joab do? He's watching the eyes of David. And David's looking over at the castle of Zion. And David resolves and he says, The first one to wipe the mocking grin off the face of the Jebusites will be first among my men. And guess who's ahead of all of them? Joab, running ahead of all the mighties. And all it says in Scripture is, and Joab became first among David's men. 
That's all it says. <laughs> so what we understand is that somehow he had to go in, up the gutter into Jebus, into the castle of Zion, and literally leap out. Could you imagine all the Jebusites with drawn swords? And, and Joab, ahead of all of them, has to wipe the smirk off their face. So instead of slicing off their head, he knocks them in the jaw. The love burn. Do you have such a concern for the glory of your king that when you see him look longingly upon that castle of Zion and you hear the mocking railings of the Jebusites and you're waiting for him to say it, and when he starts opening his mouth, you start running. You long to be the first among his men, to be the nearest, the closest. The love mission, the three rushing on Bethlehem. Remember in the cave of Adullam? David is longingly wishing for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. And there's three mighties in the cave with him at the time. And I have no idea what this must have been like inside their head. But you know what? If their beloved is longing for a cup of cool water, let's go get it for him. Bethlehem is currently garrisoned in by the Philistines. It was overtaken. It's hostile territory. The three mighties... Start running towards Bethlehem. I always imagine, you know, the, the watch on the garrison, they have their binoculars. I know they didn't have binoculars back then, but I always picture it with binoculars. It's like, uh, <clears throat> Chuck, do you see what I see? They go, hands them the uh, binoculars, like, what? What in the Three? Three guys? Well, they're getting closer. Are they coming this way? They got to be crazy. They burst in through the garrison of Philistines. What are they after? Not Philistines. They're after a cup of cool water from the well. Could you imagine? They burst through like, you know, this announcement. All the, all the Philistines are now coming to get these guys. And what are they doing? Hurry up. Can you get that uh, cup down into the water? G -g hurry up. Hurry up. Two of them are fighting off. One guy is getting a cup. And now they're like, I got it. Now they have to run back through Philistine blood everywhere, trying not to spill the cup of cool water. What is this? The love mission. If you hear the whisperings of your king, the longings of your king, what ends will you go to to acquire it for him? He wants a cup of cool water. Start running. The love stand, Joshobium and the 800 dead. All we know is that Joshobium took on 800 men single-handedly for the glory of his king. And I just, I can't even imagine what it must have been like, his bloodied sword as he comes in before his king and kneels down and sets down his sword and says, for you, dear king. The love stand. I don't care what's surrounding you. I don't care if the odds are off the charts impossible. Are you willing to stand up for your king? For his glory, you fight. By what strength do you fight? His strength, his glory. And you do not back down. Could you imagine? 800. Okay, we're down to 799. All right, we're down to 780, which would be quite a feat. That's 20. I mean, this is one enormous battle all by your lonesome. For the glory of my king, I stand. Pazdaman, all Israel flees. Why? The Philistines are rushing on a little parcel of land known as Pazdaman. Barley and beans, but it's in the land of promise. And for David, that's all that matters. This is God's territory. 
it does not belong to the Philistines. But all Israel flees. They don't want to die over a little parcel of barley and beans. So David stands alone. Could you imagine if you saw your king standing alone? Two of his mighties, Shammah and Eleazar, stand with him. Two. Could you imagine what it must have felt like against an entire army? It says, Eleazar's hand grew weary, but he clave his hand unto his sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. The love sacrifice. The palace of Saul is awaiting any one of us. If we want to live in the comforts of this world, have at it. That's the easy life. It's the broad road. But there's a narrow road. And if you want to stand with Jesus, you have to forsake life with Saul. You have to forsake the comfort of the down pillow and the down comforter. Come to the cave. David's in a cave. It's not comfortable there. This is a season of persecution. You can't live half with Saul and half with David. Neither of them will want you. They'll sense that you're a spy for the other. You're either all Saul's or all David's. You choose your side. If you chose David, you're not choosing it because it's comfortable. It's because you can be nowhere else but where your king is. You want to be with your king. Life in the cave of Adullam, sleeping where he sleeps, living where he lives, going where he goes. Well, he's living in a cave. Have you ever had a rock for a pillow? It's not quite as comfortable as a down pillow. We'll just put it that way. And yet, you could be in all the posh of Saul's palace and be uncomfortable. Because if you know that David is on the other side of Israel, in a cave, where do you want to be? I want to be where Jesus is. I want to be where he is. I always have a mental picture of coming into the cave with Jesus, with David in this situation, but with Jesus. And him saying, saying, you're welcome here to be among my men, which, by the way, would be a privilege of privileges to be allowed in amongst his mighty, to sleep alongside, knowing that Joshobium is right there. That's the sword that he used to kill 800. You reach out and touch it. That's Benai. He jumped into a pit on a snowy day and defeated a lion. Oh, this is exciting. But guess who's watching over you at night? Guess who's back pacing, watching over the ones he loves? Because he is your beloved, but you're his beloved. And he watches over you. And you can go to sleep and sleep deeply, though you're in a cave with a rock as your pillow. Because guess who's watching over you? the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And if you wake up in the night, who's he looking at? He's looking right down at you. He says, shh, you're fine. Go back to sleep. Get a good night's sleep. We have an adventure tomorrow. The king watches over you. Who wants to be in the palace when you could be in the cave with Jesus? Yes, his way is narrow. Who wants to be on the broad way with all the junk? When you can be on the narrow way, even with tribulation and suffering, difficulty, imprisonment, but to be there with Jesus. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. He's always there with you. Your beloved. He's always there. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits of God, unto God and to the Lamb. Wherever he goes, we go. Affectionate love in the New Testament. Splogon. Actually, I'm supposed to go. Splogon. 
It's not a very attractive word, I know. God's tenderest affections. His deepest and warmest mercies towards us who believe. I wish it was a more beautiful word. It could be very poetic. How would you like to name your son? Splockon. Some of you are thinking, I like it. I like it. Through the Splaghan of the mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the Splaghan of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has this, this depth of affection. It's typically translated as bowels in Scripture, which is very awkward. But it's the depths of affection. It's the depths of feeling. It's the innermost feeling. Jesus has this affection. And how does Paul love the saints? With the the same affection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is your Philadelphia. He is the affection. That's how we love. Not with our own affection. With his. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, splogon of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Philadelphia, the grace to love with Slogonian affection. How's that? (laughs) That's what Philadelphia is. It's the grace to love people, but with deep affection. It's not just dealing with people so that you can get by. It's like, oh boy, okay, God, could you give me the grace so I could endure? It's not endurance. It's deep affection. Betsy Tenboom, when she's getting beaten by the Nazi guards... What does she have? She has splogon. She has a depth of affection and she's weeping over that man's soul. She wants him to know Jesus. That's all she cares about. That Jesus would be known. She loved these people that were beating her. That's not just endurance. That's taking Jesus and revealing him to this world even through the suffering. You are not being commissioned by Jesus to endure people. You're being commissioned by Jesus to love with Philadelphian, Splogonian affection. You are meant to love as Christ loves. Those nearest, those dearest, the fellow believers, the lost, the unlovely, and the persecutors. You know, they're basically everything falls into this camp one way or the other. We prove this grace first and foremost in our closest relationships. You practice this Splagonian affection with your brothers and sisters when you're growing up, with your moms and dads, and then you practice on your wives and your children, and guess what you're learning? You're learning to love in every situation. You're learning to seek their highest good. You're learning to allow the warm affections to come forth even when you're spat upon. In every situation, you're learning it. And guess what? When you're in that prison cell and you're being beaten down, you're ready. You've learned. You've learned how to love as Jesus loves. And so what comes out of you? When they strike you, out comes love. When they pierce you, out flows love. What did David Wilkerson say? You can cut me into a thousand or a million pieces. I don't remember what it was. I think it was a thousand. You can cut me into a thousand pieces. Every piece will cry out, I love you. What's inside of us? It should be Jesus. And when we're pierced, when we're taxed, when we're tried, out comes Jesus. The Philadelphian barricade, aware of the seven javelins of the old man that kill affection and intimacy, 
You see, Jesus is a barricade. When we are dealing with humans, there is a bait. Okay, now let's, let's use family. Family can say those words just the right way that can get under our skin. We have higher expectation on family than we do anyone else. We expect them to be perfect. You ever notice that? And if they're not perfect, we're upset with that. We have tremendous allowance for other people's families to not be perfect, but our own, they're not perfect. And so as a result, we have a tendency to be irritated and frustrated very easily. But all of these things are bait. There are various things that will break down your ability to be a flow-through channel for the grace of God. And so we'll call this the Philadelphian barricade. What you need is a wall in your life that when this irritation comes knocking, when this frustration comes knocking, when this temptation comes knocking to break down your flow-through channel of grace, you're aware of it and you block it. Javelin number one. So this is the old man who is looking to penetrate the veil. He wants to take down David. He wants to, he wants to turn Jonathan back towards him. So he has javelins in his hand. Javelin number one, grievance, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment. You allow any of it in, and suddenly you are all that grace for people and for dealing with people well is blocked. You can't love people as Jesus loves if you are unforgiving. You have to allow the forgiveness to flow through. Javelin number two, accusation. Criticism, implied responsibility for a problem, fault finding. I tell you what, this is massive bait. And some of you know what it means. You have people in your life that only see faults in you. They don't see anything pleasant in you. And as a result, you trip over it every time. You get close to it and you resolve when you're away from them. Like, I'm going to love them this time. And then they come here and they criticize. First time they see you, you know, they say, your hair sure looks funny today. And there it goes. I knew you hadn't changed. And out comes your old man. Out comes the junk of hell. Out of you, a Christian. You're buying the bait. You're meant to be a conduit of Jesus Christ unto that person. You must have the Philadelphian grace. You must have grace for help in time of need, and that help is needed right now. Javelin number three, irritation, frustration, shortness of fuse. Well, if any of you struggle with that, you understand what, what that means. That is literally a bait away from allowing the grace of God to flow through you. Javelin number four, anxiety, words to strike, fear, evil words of foreboding and doom. When you're around people, here you are, you used to struggle with anxiety and fear, and now you're around someone who struggles with anxiety and fear. And they're just a prophet of doom. Have you ever been around a prophet of doom? All they have are words that are just terrible to speak. Well, guess what? That's a bait for you. And so instead of allowing the flow-through channel of grace, you get mad at them and you start correcting them and the fact that they shouldn't speak like that. Well, they don't have the grace of God, maybe. They don't even know what you know. And so you can't just correct them. What you need to do is love them. You need to be a flow-through channel. It doesn't mean you can't help them, but pray first before you just start correcting. Javelin number five, overstatements, extreme statements, words like always, never, and the like. You always do this. You never do this. Is that a bait for any of you? That isn't true. And you think of the one instance where it didn't happen. <laughs> you see, extreme statements are a trigger for many of us. What they're saying might actually be true, but it came out in an extreme statement, and as a result, you, were, you are charged by it. And as a result, the grace of God is hindered coming through your life. Javelin number six, anger, slights, diminishment, hurt, harsh or hurtful words. If you fall for this bait, this is how the enemy works, and he will use Christians. He will use whatever vehicle he can get his hands on to incite you. He does not want Philadelphia 
to be revealed in the church of Jesus Christ. He must stop it at all costs. You mustn't know how to deal properly with people. You mustn't have that grace. And any of these are grace killers. If you buy the bait. Javelin number seven. Threats of leaving or abandonment. Threats of harm. Threats of exposure of secrets. I'll do this to you. If you don't change, I'll do this to you. That's bait for you. Don't fall for it. It is the enemy at his best. And yes, it is strange that he would use the ones you love to get his agenda across to you. But you must get God's agenda across to them. You know that love covers a multitude of sins? You are meant in those situations to respond as Jesus would respond. And I recognize how impossible it is. I recognize how in your own human ability you're going to say, I can't do that, Eric. I know. I can't either. But I know a God who can. And I know that if you look upon that cross and you believe in his ability, his ability will actually flow through that faith into you and enable you to do what you can't otherwise do. A weapon for, of our warfare that is mighty, adding Philadelphian grace to our spiritual arsenal. You want to be strong for the battle? You need this. You want to see your friends and family change? You need this. This is what they need to see. They need to see agape revealed in and through our lives. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Do not say that you love God if you're not willing to be a flow-through channel for his love to love your brother. This is how we prove that we are of God. This is how we show it. Just like unforgiveness literally blockades the forgiveness of God from coming into your life, so does the lack of love and being a flow-through channel of this grace. This will hinder you in your life and hinder the gospel from being preached through your life. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loves him, that begat, loves him also that is begotten of him. Listen, this is a hard sentence to understand. And everyone that loves him, speaking of God, that begat. In other words, God begat. God is the one that sponsored life. Okay, so everyone that loves him that sponsored life loves him also that is begotten of him. So if you love the one who gave life, God, Jesus, then, according to 1 John 5, 1, you love all those that are begotten of him. All that are begotten of him, no matter how love, unlovely or stinky they might be. The Philadelphian phalanx, when the church walks in all the graces. Uh, I had a meeting with some guys last Sunday, and we were talking about how to pray, and we were talking about the fact that as a group, we were more focused on our individual needs, but God wanted to strengthen us so that we could turn outward, stand shoulder to shoulder in a circle, and actually begin to deal with the needs of those around us. And that's what God does. He makes us strong to pour us out. And one of the guys, Aaron Vogel, said, that's like the musk oxen. And then he described what the musk oxen did, which is a very hard word to say multiple times in a row. You try it, musk oxen, musk oxen. Uh, 
Then he started to tell me what the musk oxen did. I said, that needs to go into a sermon. So guess what? I found a spot for it. When the church walks in all the graces, excerpted from the Alaskan Park Service official website. There's like a whole screen just for that. No other animal has the defense method of the musk oxen. When danger threatens, they do not run away. First of all, I love that. When danger threatens, they do not run away. How many animals do you know that when danger threatens, they do not run away? First of all, that's unusual, but look at what they do. Musk oxen are known above all else for their clever defense against wolves or other predators. When they see danger approaching, musk oxen run together and they all try to face the threat. If there is one predator, a lone wolf, for example, the defense strategy is to form a line. If a wolf pack surrounds the group, the musk oxen will form a tight circle, all facing outward, forming a phalanx of heads and horns. Calves will hug next to their mothers or huddle inside the circle, so the weaker are in the inside. Occasionally, one musk ox will charge the enemy but will quickly rejoin the others. If the herd doesn't run but stays together in a tight defensive formation, listen to this, their defense is virtually impenetrable. I need to read it again. If the herd doesn't run, but stays together in a tight defensive formation, let me rephrase that for us in light of this message. If we allow the grace of God to work in and through us, and we love one another, and this could be in a marriage, if the marriage stands tight and they stand together instead of allowing the enemy to come in with his bait and disturb it, if the family stands tight, we protect our weaker members, if we as the church stand in Philadelphian grace, the phalanx is established. Their defense is virtually impenetrable. Let me rephrase that for Christianity. It is impenetrable. There is nothing that can cut it off. There is nothing that can break through the lines. Because that line is Jesus, not a muskox. Muskox are, are mortal. Jesus stands forever. That's who shields us in. A muskox caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. Well, isn't that true about us? This is important to the body of Christ, and I think it's a great picture. There's how the muskoxen form a phalanx, the little ones inside, and then the strength on the outside focused outward, and that is virtually impenetrable to break through. Isn't that cool? What a, what a picture. So even if you don't have 40, because usually they're in groups of 20 to 40, even if you don't have 40 and all you have is a small home. Well, how should you be set up? You should be set up to take your strength and to protect each other. God has given us grace. What we are supposed to be doing is using that grace to build up instead of tear down. So this is just an amazing privilege that we have as the body of Christ. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his sloghon of compassion from him. That's actually not what it says. This is bowels of compassion from him. But that's the depth of affection. How dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just wax eloquent about the fact that we should love. Love! Love in deed and in truth. Be the flow-through channel. Start on your family today, even if they're not here in Windsor. Maybe they're across the country. Go out of your way to actually be a flow-through channel of love to them today. Maybe it needs to be a note. Maybe a phone call. I don't care what it is. Be a flow-through channel 
Allow the very love of God to pour through you. Start with your wife or your husband. And deliberately choose this day to love, to serve, to wash feet, to not buy the bait. See, what we oftentimes will think is, okay, I'm going to love now. Sort of a risky thing, but I'm going to love. Now I expect you to love back. That's not how it works. Jesus loved. And guess what? Not all of us loved back. Jesus loved. It was unconditional. It was not based. His love was not conditional upon our response. It was given. That's the way we love. Our children. Our children need to not be the brunt of our frustrations. Our children cannot be our problem to solve. Our children need to be our beloved. That which we will lay down our life to serve, to protect, and to give life to. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.